the religion that's really growing in the United States is booming in the United States. It's the unaffiliated. Very soon, that's going to be the largest cohort. Does that mean they're not religious? Not by any stretch. But it is going to absolutely change not only the landscape of religion in the United States, it's going to change what we mean by religion in the United States, and it's going to change fundamentally how religions interact with our culture, our society, and our politics. This week on Beliefs, we welcome the director of Fordham University Center on Religion and Culture, David Gibson. Gibson came to the helm of the center last year after a long and distinguished career as the nation's top religion reporter. Beginning with his first beat working in Rome for Vatican Radio, Gibson wrote for various magazines and national media, such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and for Catholic publications like America Magazine and Commonweal. I sat with Gibson in his office in New York. David, welcome to Beliefs. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. So, David, uh, you're new in this position, and you come from a background of uh, incredible journalism in the in the field of religion. What are you looking at doing here at this center? Well, Bill, it's really very similar in a way to what I was doing as a journalist in the sense that um, the, the Center for Religion on Culture, look at that title. It covers everything. Every, you know, religion is everywhere, frankly, and, in, in, you know, even in atheism and even in, in non-belief. And culture is the broadest possible um, term category you could have. So it's very similar to what I was doing, is exploring what people are interested in, what is important, what are the key issues that are out there that are evolving, that are changing our world today. We're having a very important discussion, which is really could be a critical uh, turning point for the Catholic Church in particular. This is a very Catholic one, but it's on the issue of whether the Catholic Church will ordain women not as priests who celebrate the Eucharist, the Mass, but as deacons, an order that was grew up in the early church. It's attested to in the Gospels where the apostles, you know, were, were busy preaching and teaching and doing all those things. And they said, hey, we need, we need an order of people to go out and help us, you know, do help serve the poor and do all those critical things as well. So they basically invented the order of deacons, ordained order. And there were men and, it seems, there were women back then. But the women kind of disappeared from the scene right after the first century. And they sort of disappeared from the Catholic uh, deacons as a whole, from the Catholic universe uh, for, for centuries. It wasn't until the 1960s that uh, the popes brought back uh, ordained male deacons. And it's, it's grown. deacons are ordained people who wear a collar, who can uh, preach, baptize, celebrate weddings and funerals, do so many of the things a priest could do. And that, that uh, order has, has, has exploded in popularity. There are tens of thousands of men, married men, who are deacons in the United States. Pope Francis, in 2016, was asked by a, a large group of women religious, say, said, look, there's no reason we shouldn't be looking at this. Can we have women as deacons as well? You know, Pope Francis, he said, why not? Let's set up a commission. So this commission has been working, researching top experts, a dozen top experts, a couple of several Americans, uh, international experts as well. And they've uh, delivered a report to the Pope. 
We don't know what he's going to do with it, but we're going to have two members of that commission at this panel here for the first time to discuss what they've been deliberating on. And again, this sounds very inside baseball, Bill, but it's about the visibility and role of women in the church uh, in a huge way. There's been this kind of um, swing for the fences approach. We need women priests. And that's just not going to happen anytime soon. But having women up there simply preaching, giving the homily, leading parishes, baptizing your babies, uh, you know, uh, commemorating your dead, this would be a huge uh, leap forward, I think, in, in many respects. What do you think the chances are of that happening? I mean, this kind of thing has been discussed for mm -hmm. at least 10 or 20 years. What is the likelihood that there might be a radical change? I think the odds are much higher now with uh, Pope Francis in and with the, with the whole movement towards, uh, you know, raising up the profile and the role of women in the church. There's just no way you can not do that anymore, and this pope has recognized this. I think it'll happen the way most things happen in the Catholic Church, which is not with some big radical change from on high, but in a, in a slower kind of way, much the way we had um, altar girls. In the United States, they said, they didn't say, oh, everybody has to have altar girls. They said, look, if you want in your parish or in your diocese, if a bishop wants to allow them, he can. And so some bishops started doing it. Now it's almost universal over these past 25 years. So I'm sure what the Pope will do is say, look, especially in rural areas, which is what the rationale for male deacons was, where there are so few priests, you need deacons. So he'll say, like in a diocese, maybe in South America, in the Amazon, you can start, you know, have a pilot program and take it from there. So he's not going to dictate that everyone, every bishop should have them, but it'll, you know, slowly, starting with a local option, spread where it's desired. How does a, a universal global church like Roman Catholic and uh, like Islam and uh, like Judaism, how do they deal with issues that are very, very micro? Uh, and is this becoming an end to the movement of global churches, and are we going to see more micro-churches of various faiths in America and in the world? Well, I think we've already seen that micro-church movement, um, you know, the, that splintering of everything you've got. Especially, you look in Latin America and these countries that were, um, you know, uh, previously almost universally and sometimes nominally Roman Catholic, and now they've gone uh, almost majority Protestant. But that's Protestant in quotes. What do you mean by Protestant? It's not one universal Protestant church, or not one single church. It's all kinds of Pentecostal and prosperity gospel and, and holiness churches, evangelical churches, a whole range of, of things out there. So we've really, you know, already entered this, this, this realm of kind of local option, uh, you know, boutique uh, Christianity. The question, I think, for Islam and especially Catholicism, as we see, there's so many tensions in this pontificate of Pope Francis, is how much, how much variety there can be at the local level while still being, calling yourself Catholic or Muslim or Jewish, whatever. Um, how much variety and, and difference can we have and still being under that one umbrella? And I, that was really, I think, the dynamic in the conclave of March 2013 that got Pope Francis elected. It wasn't so much liberal versus conservative. It was about the peripheries, the, 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 the cardinals outside of Rome. 
saying we want more we want more flexibility. We don't want Rome telling us how to translate every word of the mass. We want to have some flexibility so that we can respond to the local needs of our cultures and of our people. Otherwise, you know, if it's just going to be a Roman Catholic church selling, you know, celebrating the mass in the same way, uh, it's not going to, people aren't going to buy it, frankly. When one looks at the statistics of religion and faith in the U.S. and the world, one often gets confused because the numbers are very often first hard to come by and second, equally hard to interpret. As a journalist and an expert in this field of faith and religion in America and globally, uh, where do you see faith going? Do you think faith is becoming even more important in this world, in this country, or is it kind of becoming secularized and in the process of disappearing? Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you look at it, I mean, faith remains incredibly important. Spirituality remains incredibly important. And you look at it, you can't separate all these things, both demographically or, uh, you know, religiously, in the sense that look at the world as a whole. Religion is a huge driving force, both in Christianity in the Southern Hemisphere and Islam and, of course, Judaism and, and Buddhism and, 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 and Hinduism around the world, this remains a, a driving force. And you also have, despite our uh, president, current president's policies, you still have America as a melting pot and a, and a place that's attracting people from all around the world. So it's not just a question of what's happening with religion in, in America, but what's happening to religion around the world where it remains a huge force. That said, yes, there is a secularizing trend very much in the modern West and in the United States. But as much as anything, it's not that atheism is growing. People aren't rejecting God necessarily or certainly not spirituality. They are rejecting organized religion institutional religion, the crisis of institutions that we see across the board in this era of populism, that's something that's been affecting the, the churches and organized religions, traditional religions, uh, very much and, and for a very long time. So, you know, it used to be the, the old thesis was conservative churches were growing. They were the bulwark because they had high demands on their and their people. Well, if you look at the religion that's really growing in the United States, is booming in the United States, it's the unaffiliated, the younger generation. They are going that's going to be very soon. That's going to be the largest cohort in the United States. Does that mean they're not religious? Not by any stretch. But it is going to absolutely change not only the landscape of religion in the United States, it's going to change what we mean by religion in the United States, and it's going to change fundamentally how religions, traditional religions, interact with our culture, our society, and our politics. David, uh, a journalist's role, it strikes me, is to seek the truth. Uh, it also strikes me that uh, religion's role is to seek the truth for uh, people of faith, but they do it in very different ways. How do you deal with that, being a journalist and in the field of religion, faith, and ethics? Well, to me, they've always had a great overlap. I'm a practicing Catholic, and I take that very seriously. And 
it's, you know, it's a search for truth. And as a practicing journalist, which I also take seriously, one's a vocation, one's an avocation, I guess, um, it's also a search for truth. And they really are, they really overlap in so many ways. I mean, I always look, you know, you look at the the martyrology of each year of the number of missionaries and Christians killed, for example, abroad. Um, and you, and it's just, it's a very stirring, terrible thing, tally. But these days you also look at the list of journalists who are essentially martyrs for their search for truth. And there just seems to be such a natural overlap there. As journalists, of course, we search for truth and just put it out there and let the cards chips fall where they may. Religion takes it further and seeks to make sense of it, seeks to find meaning in that truth. What does it mean? And also, what does it mean for us? And so that's, that's the, 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 the central difference. And that's where you kind of flip from being you know, just a journalist to being also a person of faith. What do you do with this truth which you have discovered? David, you've had a long career already and uh, hopefully a long one ahead of you. Uh, what are you the most proud of that you've accomplished over all these years of various forms of reporting, all in the areas of faith, religion, ethics? I think, you know, that I've uh, – I'm proud of uh, a lot of the dark secrets that I've uncovered, the traditional role of the journalist – um, to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted and to shine a light and, in dark corners and, and expose certain things. I certainly did a lot of reporting on the abuse crisis, which I've been covering for far too long. Um, but, you know, and that's always kind of the sexy uh, role of the journalist, you know, the, the, the Woodward and Bernstein kind of thing. But, but really, especially as a religion writer, what I'm most proud of, and I hope I was able to do this, is explaining other faiths to people of different traditions or of no traditions at all. We always joke in the, in the newsrooms, I mean, the worst religion writer task is when the holidays come up. You got to do that Christmas story. You got to do that Hanukkah story. You got to do the Ramadan story. You know, you almost want to set up a template. You know, today at sundown, Jews, Muslims, Christians, pick one, begin the celebration of, you know, Ramadan, uh, Yom Kippur, whatever. It's a, um, it's such a standard issue story. But I think there's something to be said for those in the sense that when I wrote a story about Christmas or Easter or Yom Kippur or any faith tradition, I wasn't really writing a story to uh, cater to that faith group or to tell Christians that it's Christmas or Jews that it's the high holidays. They know. What I'm writing is to explain this tradition to people who are not Jewish, to people who are not Muslim. What is this? are these people about? It's, it's educating everyone else. And as we've grown over the 25, 30 years I've been doing this, we've grown. You can just see how diverse we've grown. And with these new religious groups coming up, and it's vital that um, religion reporters, and frankly so many reporters, have a kind of educational explanatory role to what they do. And, you know, it's not as sexy as breaking news all the time. But the response that we get 
when you do stories like that, really justifies both the religion beat and doing that kind of good explanatory journalism. Do you think there are going to be more religion reporters? It seems like there are fewer these days than before. Where, where do you think religion reporting is going? I think religion reporting is, is deeply under, uh, under stress, and, and, but the whole media industry is under stress. And unfortunately, you know, religion reporters tend to be canaries in the mine. They're the first ones to go, which is dumb. <laughs> it's so stupid. And I've been, you know, beating my head against the wall on this for, for years and years, and I don't understand it. These stories are vital. Religion is vital to people. You know, it's just too many editors. They're scared of it, you know. They're scared. They're, let's talk about politics. We'll talk about sports. We'll do anything. So it's... Um, it's a beat that's very much under stress. And yet, you know, there are a couple of things happening. You do see so many outlets, Atlantic, The Atlantic, Vox, uh, you know, so many new online outlets that are um, engaging with the religion field and, and, and bringing on people who are uh, addressing these issues and writing about them in ways, perhaps in different ways, not the standard issue kind of religion page stuff we had before, which is fine, but they're writing about it in new ways and in, and in, and in really appealing ways. So I'm seeing, frankly, a, a bit of a, a renaissance in religion reporting. The problem, I see, is, is, is reflective of the wider problem in the media industry, which is the economics of the industry are changing so rapidly uh, to the digital framework, less money coming in. So what they're doing is they're shrinking newsrooms and they're getting rid of folks, people with experience on the beat. And religion is – so you get a lot of younger people coming in, a lot of energy, willing to work a lot, lot of hours for less money. That's great. But especially with religion, they don't have the experience or they don't have the, 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 either the personal or professional experience to really dive into these topics and know who to talk to. It takes a while. You've really got to plumb the depths of a culture, a religion, and a history in order to write effectively about religion. And that means you need people with some real chops and some real experience. So I, I lament the loss of that, uh, that experience. David, we're glad that uh, we haven't lost you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, still, keep, still keep my hand in once in a while, let's hope. <laughs> David Gibson, head of the Center of, on Religion and Culture at Fordham University. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Bill. Great to be here. Our guest was the critically acclaimed religion writer and director of Fordham University's Center on Religion and Culture, David Gibson. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jonathan Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thanks for listening.